And uh, just before I invite Phil up, I just wanted to say one quick thing. It's quite a practical thing, uh, but reflects what we believe about the Bible. reflects what we believe about preaching. And that is, if you have a phone with you today, and uh, when you go to listen to uh, Phil preach this morning, you're going to open up your phone and look at the Bible passage. Um, You might use it for notes. That's fine. But can I encourage you? Can you put it on airplane mode? Okay. So I, I think, as people who hold the Bible highly, who say we believe in God's Word, we believe God has revealed Himself through His Word, and that through the preaching of God's Word, God changes our hearts, makes us new people, continues to renew us as His children. I think it would be a good idea for us to turn off WhatsApp and uh, Facebook and all the bits that might be giving us notifications as we go. Does that sound good? Good idea? Yeah. Great. Okay, Phil, I'd love to pray for you. And then over to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Phil. Thank you, God, for the gift you've clearly given him uh, as a preacher and a teacher of your word. We pray, Father, that uh, as he speaks, he'd speak with boldness and courage because your spirit has filled him as a messenger of your word, someone who has been set aside, gifted to proclaim the good news of Jesus through the Bible. So this morning, would you, would you fill us afresh with your spirit as we listen and submit and sit under your word and help us, Father, to be changed this morning for your glory and with that bring much good to us in Jesus name Amen Well good morning folks lovely to see you all uh, this morning and uh, lovely to see you all in, in airplane mode it's nice to be flying with you this morning um so here we are, here we are in, in, in the series of, of Joshua, and, and it's, been going, it's been going wonderfully well uh, uh, so far uh, in, this, in this book. Uh, and, and, and helpfully, uh, Ian's uh, you know, given me the absolute hospital pass <laughs> of, of jo- Joshua chapter 7. So I'm just going to give you a little kind of run through of the of the story so far and and I'm not a huge huge musician as is about to become clear but I think it might it might be helpful uh, if if I use the guitar just to to explain the story so far so just bear with me for one second Lovely major chords. Here we are. It's been so uh, 
Come on, guys, let's cross the Jordan. <laughs> and the Jordan opens, and I think we're so cross. And and oh, here comes here comes a Jericho. Let's send some spies in. Oh, and there's a lovely woman called Rahab. <laughs> and she's and she's she's helping us out. And 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 then we'll we'll do exactly what God tells us to. We'll walk around Jericho a few times. We'll stay silent, and then we'll shout at the appropriate moment. And the walls will fall down. There we are. So it's all this lovely, lovely um, major chord. Everything's just going so, so well. Today, however, <laughs> today, things are going to take a turn for the worse. However, it must be said, if you're feeling down at any point, that it is going to end <laughs> on an up. And that, that kind of pattern of major, minor, up at the end, is actually the pattern for an awful lot of the stories in the Bible. Lots of things in the Bible, if you read them, they tend to begin well. But at some point, and generally speaking, it's actually pretty quickly, things go wrong. But because the story of the Bible is a redemptive story, it's a story of grace, it's a story of love, it's a story of the faithfulness of a God who refuses to allow his creation to be destroyed by sin. It will end halfway. Are you with me? Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, that's you. Please know that that's enough. <laughs> Thank you. You will never hear me play the guitar again in this church. So, if you were going to leave on that basis, uh, then can I encourage you to stick around? Okay. So when uh, so we're going to look at something so a kind of dark in section of the story. Uh, today and uh, I don't know you I I, I love uh, I love movies and particularly kind of fantasy type of films uh, I love them my wife hates them so I have to watch them when she's out uh, but uh, I absolutely loved the Lord of the Rings trilogy I don't know if you love the Lord of the Rings trilogy um, uh, they, they, these are three incredible films that came out. Um, actually almost 20 years ago now, it's incredible. And I remember going to see them consecutively because they came out at Christmas one after the other. Uh, and it was just this, this amazing, sweeping, incredible story uh, which was brought to this wonderfully satisfactory conclusion at the end of The Return of the King. Uh, but a couple of years after the Lord of the Rings trilogy finished, Clearly, the studios will hear in for you. Know, maybe, maybe we can, you know, do something else that will kind of capture the same audience. And uh, they decided to make uh, start making the Narnia series. And in 2005, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out. And I went along to the cinema, hoping really for the same kind of experience that I had in Lord of the Rings. And I have to say, I was 
sorely disappointed. Now, I think my expectations were probably in the wrong place because I think the Narnia movies were probably more kids' films. But the, the, the reason that I, having reflected on it, the reason that I liked that movie less than the Lord of the Rings films is because it seemed to me that the way evil was presented in the Lord of the Rings films did justice to the darkness and the kind of terrifying nature of evil, of injustice, of sin. And because of it, that the battles were fierce and, and, and destructive and there was a tremendous cost that had to be paid by the characters in the film and, and many people died along the way in order for ultimately the ending to be positive. If the battles were gory, the enemies were grotesque and horrible, they were, the characters indeed were conflicted because the, the evil wasn't just out there, it was also in here. And in the end, they were triumphant. And you felt as though the triumph meant something because there was a price that had to be paid for it. Contrast that with Narnia, the film that the Delightful If this is your favourite film, I'm very sorry. You're quite hating it right now. But it just seemed to me like there was no genuine peril. It was a kind of bloodless battle where people barely got a hair out of place. You never really felt that there was any genuine threat or any risk that they weren't going to win. Even the sacrifice of Aslan, which should have been the centre of a much better movie, just kind of seemed almost a kind of pantomime. Something that we'll do even though we kind of know how it's all going to end. The problem is that the gospel is often presented more like the Narnia film than it is like the Lord of the Rings. Sometimes you'll hear that you're, you're basically a nice person and, and, and listen, Jesus, he's also a really nice guy and he's really encouraging you just to be nice with other people, just be nice together and let's just go on this journey of niceness. As a teenager, I... Uh, Started going to church really in my late teens. Again, I've not been at all through most of my teenage years because I was kind of seeking to understand, I suppose, what this message of Christianity was. And for a few years, it felt like to me all I heard was the encouragement to be a nicer person. And I remember as somebody who didn't know. Jesus, in any way, like an 18 year old guy sitting in the pews week after week and thinking to myself, this cannot be the message that has transformed the world. I mean, I know so little about this, but I know it just, it just didn't seem to be psychologically persuasive that the injunction to be nice could be the thing that hundreds of millions of people around the globe and throughout history had given their lives for. It didn't seem to me that the injunction to be nice 
could be the thing that was firing uh, the hearts of missionaries to go to the, the ends of the earth, often at great price, often to death. The message that you're basically nice and Jesus is nice too, let's be nice together. It's a story without a cost, without the true darkness that exists in the world and in you. Because of that, it is absolutely eviscerated of its meaning. But any read of the Bible will tell you that this is not the story. And today we are going to look at the darkness that there is in the world and at times in ourselves. But there is where the meaning lies. This is how it makes sense. And this is the gospel that can change your life. Because when I heard the true gospel when I was 20 years old, I knew immediately that this suddenly was a message that if I took it on board, would radically alter the course of my life, and indeed it did. So, so here we are in Joshua chapter 7. It's a long chapter, and we're also into going into chapter 8, really, to complete the story. So I'm just going to tell it rather than read it. But if you haven't read it recently, I encourage you to read it at home. So basically what happens in this chapter is that it, we have just seen the fall of Jericho, which was this kind of marvellous, triumphant moment where the people of God listened very clearly to what God had to say, and they followed it precisely, and as a result... Exactly what God said would happen, happened. Imagine that. Incredible. It works. I mean, they must be thinking that. I mean, they must be, I suppose these were people who had just seen the Jordan Park so that they could walk through. So they, they, they must have had decent faith levels. But they walked around this walled city. They were quiet at the right moment. They shouted at the right moment. The walls came down. And God had also said that when you go in, Jericho, I want you to kill everything. And all the, the plunder, all the spoil, all the wealth of the city, I want you to dedicate to me. This is not for you. This is, this is not to make you rich. This is not a war of conquest where you enrich yourself by, by taking the wealth of this city. This is something I am fighting for you. I am the God who is among you. The spoils of this battle belong to me. And then, the next thing they do is they, they see that there's, there's a city, another city called Ai. Imagine you, I mean Ai, you sound as though you're pretty cool if you're from Ai, don't you? Where are you from? Ai. And he spelled that. <laughs> uh, but but AI but actually was quite a small, small thing, and they thought, well, you know, if, listen, we've just been Jericho, the might of Jericho. It's like, you know, we've just destroyed Glasgow, and now 
all that remains is Paisley. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, that, kind of, it's that kind of thing. It doesn't seem like it's as much of a challenge. And so, so a group of, of warriors go to AI and they get absolutely routed. They get their butts kicked. And, and there are fatalities, people, people die. Like people's fathers lost their life that day. Like sons died in that battle. And, and so Joshua was like, what? I mean, I'm sure God said that, that he would be with us and that we wouldn't be defeated. And now AI is like, it worked once, it didn't work, what's going on here? And so he prays and God says, listen, get off your feet, Joshua. There's a problem here and you need to sort this out. He said, there's somebody among you who has taken some of the spoils of Jericho, things that were belonging to me, we need to sort this out, or I can't be with you. And so what they do is they, they get them all, uh, all of Israel, and, and, they, and they pray, and then they whittle it down to a tribe, and then they whittle it down to a family, and then they whittle it down to a man. And this guy, Achan, is, is the one that God says, this is the man who has taken the and they ask him, and he says, yeah, yeah, I did take it, and, and it's buried in my tent. And uh, so they go to his tent, and under his tent, they dig up the ground, and there's the gold and the silver and a cloak that he's taken. And then God says, okay, what you need to do is you need to take him, and you need to take his family, and you need to take everything that belongs to him, and you need to take it out into the valley, and you need to actually destroy it. That's a minor chord. And, and that's what they do. That's what they do. And then after that, they go against AI again and they win. And that's our story for today. And there's lots and lots and lots of things that I could say about this. But we've not got that much time. So I'm just going to say three things. And the first thing is this this is a story that tells us about the structure of sin. As I was reading this, um, well, let's actually just look at a few verses. If you look at verse 20, uh, we'll read a few verses there. Um, so this is, the, this is from the moment where Achan was, was found out. And Achan answered Joshua, verse 20, chapter 7, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, not an insubstantial amount of money, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, a lot of money, then I coveted, and I took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Okay, if you had a highlighter, I would encourage you to highlight saw, coveted, took, and hidden. Now when you read that, maybe it reminds you of something. Maybe it reminds you of Genesis chapter three, which you can flip to if you like, but if not, I'm gonna read from verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired. Desired there is the same Hebrew word as coveted in Joshua. To make one what wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband. And then if you skip down to verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. You can see that this is a repeating pattern. You see, you take, you covet, you take, you hide. And there are loads of places in the Bible, like for example, David and Bathsheba, where the same pattern exists. And we're supposed to learn something from this. But this is the structure, this is the shape of sin. This is the shape of, this is what it looks like in your life and in mine and in this story. There's not a new strategy. There's no new ideas here. So if, if we can look at these four words a little bit more closely, let's, let's, let's think about where the problem really lies. Is it the seeing? Is it the seeing? Well, listen, here's the thing. I bet lots of people saw what Achan saw on that day when they rushed into Jericho. I bet there were loads of them. You know, there must be treasure everywhere. Loads of people saw what he saw. Seeing in itself is not sinful. It's not the problem. Martin Luther said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head. But you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I mean, that's, that's a lovely thing, they thought. <laughs> but it's true. Isn't it? I mean, that is manifestly true. You cannot keep spread a bird flag over your head, but you can keep it from building. But obviously it is utterly foolish to go looking for things that will give you a problem. And the book of Proverbs is wonderful on that subject. But the truth is this, we do not want to be people who are living terrified lives. And, and sometimes Christians have made, I think, you know, overemphasized this in the past, and it's led to a kind of withdrawal from the world. You know, we're so terrified that we might see something that might cause us to sin, that actually we just become a kind of holy huddle. You know, this, this, this series on Joshua is called Battle Faithfulness. The point is, it's about how you engage in the battle. Achan was advancing the purposes of God when he saw this. If he had just sat in his tent, he would never have seen it. The reality is that when we engage with the world, as, as to be honest, Jesus shows us that we need to, we are going to see things. Birds are going to fly over our head, so to speak. Seeing is not in and of itself the problem. What about taking? Taking another, another key part of, of, of the structure of sin. Well, it's, it's the nature of sin to, to take. The opposite of, of, of the nature of love, which is to give. Love is always other focused. Sin is always grasping. It's always rapacious. It's always about the self. Jesus tells us that actually even that action 
which is maybe the moment of sin, is really predicated on something that is in here. Out of the mouth, these, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, he says in Matthew 15. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, death, false witness, slander. And these are what defile a person. So it's not, it's not really the seeing. It's not really the taking either. And it's not really the hiding. I mean, the hiding is a kind of consequence, I suppose, of the taking. And you do see, it is certainly utterly foolish to think that you can hide something from God. I mean, we've all been there, but let's be honest with ourselves. There is no hiding from God. I mean, there's, the, there's whole books of the Bible, really, about this. Like, think of, think of poor Jonah. You know? In the ancient Near East, um, at the time of Jonah... What they believed was that, that, or what the pagans believed is that, that gods had a kind of territory, a kind of jurisdiction, so that they would have the god of the city. But once you were outside the city, you know, the god couldn't touch you. And really one of the things that, that God is constantly impressing upon his people throughout the Old Testament is that he is the god of everywhere because the whole world is his. And because of that, Is his. It's like when you play hide and seek with your kid and they stick their head under a pillow and they think they've hidden. It's kind of cute and kind of ridiculous, and that's kind of what we're like when we think that we're hiding from God. But what about coveting? What about coveting? John Piper says this covetousness is desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. Or it is losing our contentment in God so that we start to replace God with something else in our desires and our contentment. It's not wrong to desire things. And sometimes I think this is mistaught and it leads to people kind of feeling that it's wrong to go for something in life or to, to pursue a calling or, or to, you know, to, to have a kind of desire in their heart to, you know, to write a book and then write one or, or, or to, to get a good job and then get one. You know, the, the, the desire in and of itself, that's, that's not the problem. The problem is that when you desire it so much, that you start to lose your contentment in God. If I could only have that thing, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be happy. And you can see again, can't you, the parallel with Genesis 3. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here is the question 
for Eve, for Achan, and for us. Is God really good? Is He holding out on you? Is he withholding something from you that actually, if you only had that, then you would be whole. Then you would be happy. Then you would be complete. Then you would be saved. Because you see, what that thing is, is functionally your saviour. And that is an idol. It's not a, a, a totem, or not just a totem that you might kind of erect in your back garden and bow down to. Not many, not much of that happening in Broomhill, I don't think, where I live. But listen, idolatry is, is everywhere. Uh, trusting other things, this thing will say, family will save me. Just get my kids into uni and get them set on the way. Then I will feel like I've achieved something as a person and I feel like, you know, the family will live on. A good thing. The, 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 the fruit was looked good. It's always a good thing that becomes a God thing. Always a good thing. Listen, you can... You can be told, be faithful. Be faithful to, be, to God. You, people can tell you, be faithful to God. You know, a hundred times, a hundred thousand times, it will not make a difference to you unless you are convinced of this. That God is good. That He's your loving Heavenly Father. That He is not withholding any good thing from you without purpose. And that purpose is always benign. It's always for your good. It's always for your interest. It was Maisie's birthday yesterday. We were withholding her presence. You know, despite she was testing the fences every day for about a week. We were withholding them. Was it because we didn't love her? No, precisely the opposite. Because we loved her. How do you see God? What comes to mind? What is in your heart when you see something that, that actually you know would be really great and, and maybe you just can't have at this season of your life? This is where we are vulnerable to idolatry. This is where we're vulnerable to covetousness if we don't have a really robust understanding of God as our Father who loves us. That doesn't, that changes the way we go through hard seasons. Because it's never, I'm being cursed. It's always, I'm being led. I'm being taught. I'm being shaped by a God who loves me. And who is my dad. This is a huge issue. There's only one of the Ten Commandments that deals with your thoughts. And it's the tenth one, you shall not covet. And if you break it, you've already broken the first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. 
Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So that is the shape of sin. The consequences of sin, very quickly, are bleak, are truly, truly bleak. And it is not within my power to soften them in any way. In grasping for more than God has given, the terrible irony is that Achan loses everything. And you see, that is the structure of so many tragic stories. I'm an English teacher, I love tragedy. Love it. Okay? So Macbeth. I'm going to give you some Macbeth this morning. You're going to love this. <laughs> so Macbeth is a man. He's, listen, he's a warrior. He's a war hero. But he wants to be more than a war hero. He wants to be king. And so he grasps for it. And in that action of grasping for the throne... He destroys the very thing that he loved, loved about the throne. It's like a man who goes out into a field and sees an eagle flying in the sky and says, I want that. That is so beautiful. I want it. So he comes back the next day with a gun and he shoots it. It falls to the earth. He gets it stuffed. He sticks it on his death, a desk. And he realizes in that moment that the very thing he loved about the eagle was that it was soaring above him. This is the consequence of sin. This is what happens when we grasp for more than God will give us. Idolatry opens the door to every other sin because there is no peace. There is no contentment. Yahweh is the God who fights for Israel, but you have to fight for your idols. You have to do the fighting. You know? In a literal sense, you have to carry your own idol through the desert. But Yahweh is the God who carries you through the desert. And so, the turning away from the source of all life always leads to death. And it's more, but it's more than just death. The, the destruction is so complete, is so terrible, that you know, at the end there can be heaped this mound of stones over Achan and all his family. It's like they are wiping him out, all record of him from the face of the earth. It's, it's not just destruction, it's decreation. It's as though he never was. This is the consequence of sin. That when we turn away from the God who brings all, breathes order into the chaos of the cosmos, we embrace that chaos. We turn away from the benign shalom of God. And we step into an ugly, dark, chaotic realm that ends 
not just in death, but in decreation. This is what is being played out here. But I said to you that there would be a major chord at the end. But you've got to look really closely for it. Really, really, really closely. In chapter 7, there is a little genealogy which is very easy to read over and miss what is saying to us there. But if you see it, you'll notice that Achan was of the tribe of Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. Now, what is the Sunday school answer to the question? Who else is from the tribe of Judah? Anyone? Jesus. Now here's the point. Here is the point. That Achan, in all his brokenness and all his fallenness, somehow in the grace of God, becomes a distant foreshadowing of Christ. You see, he was the only faithful man. He was the only one who never broke the commandment to cover, or never broke the commandment to love the Lord your God as he articulated with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul. You know, it's, it's, it's useful to ask yourself that question when you read the Bible. Who am I in this story? I'm not Joshua in this story. I am Achan. You are Achan. You are the one, and I am the one who, who grasps at things because I just think if I can have that, then I'll be happy. If I can just have this for my kids, then I'll feel like I'm a, you know, a good dad. And I'm... I am the one who's constantly generating idols. But Jesus is the one, even though he was sinless, he was dragged outside the camp, outside the city walls. Jesus is the one who experienced the decreation of the cross so that I So that you could be recreated. He is the one who went in to the darkness. Who went into the evil and the brokenness of our lives in this world. And rose again three days later. Triumphing over all the powers of the enemy. He is the much Better Achan, who was prophesied over, uh, prophesied about in Isaiah 65, when Isaiah says that the valley of Acre, the very place where Achan was killed, will become a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. He is the man who was prophesied over in Hosea when, when he said, There I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Acre a door of 
hope. You think about that. You think about that day when they dragged him out and they stoned him and his family and all this stuff and they heaped this rubble over it in the silence of that valley, the nothingness. Where is he coming from? Hopelessness. And yet here we read, I will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. This is the wonder of our God. You will not, this is what I've learned, this much I know, you will not unsee an idol in your life by telling yourself. Uh, not to worship idols or, or by telling yourself that you don't really need that car or you don't really need that house or you don't really need your kids to get to that particular university you, you won't that's not what will do it what you need is something better something more lovable something more wonderful what you need is to see Jesus you need to see Jesus. You need to say like, like Paul did in Philippians, whatever I had gained, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You need to see Jesus. You need to see, and then suddenly, you know, where the whole realm of nature might were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I need to see Jesus. I need to see him all the time. If I don't, I know my heart will be drawn to other things. I need to preach the gospel to myself all the time. I need to stand and worship this Jesus all the time. I need to meditate and think about this extraordinary God who steps into history to take the sin of my sin on his shoulders. I need to think about it again and again and again because it's in thinking about it and meditating on it. Through the power of the Spirit, we see him in our hearts. We start to see what these things are just worthless items. It's just what? It's just eternal life. The God of all creation is being offered to me. I'm worried about my alloys. <laughs> I'm worried about my iPhone upgrades. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are worth it. 
Lord, you are more worth it than we can possibly imagine. And the testimony of saints down the centuries is that you are worth it. You have always been worth it. You are the Holy One. You are the risen and ascended Christ. You are the beginning and end of all things, the firstborn of all creation. Everything began in you and it's all headed back to you, Lord. And how on earth did I get included in this? How on earth, Lord, did, did some kid from the south side of Glasgow didn't know which way was up, somehow blundering into this God, this grace. Father, I pray, Jesus, that we would all see you afresh this morning. We would see the wonder of your cross, the miracle of your salvation. And we would so glory in your goodness that our hearts will be one again. Lord, we know that the, the consequences of sin is death. But in you there is the promise of eternal life. Help us, Lord, to live in that goodness today and all the days of our life, Lord. In Jesus' name. Wonderful. One of the ways that we remind ourselves that Jesus is better, better aching, he's way better than any of these idols on offer, is to take communion together. And um, we do that every week at Glasgow Grace because we, we want to do what, what Luther described as constantly beating the gospel into our heads. Because we need that, don't we? I need that. Like Phil was saying, I need that. I need to sit under preaching like that. Or someone reminds me. Beat the gospel into your head. Like remind yourself that God is better, that Jesus is better. Way better than anything else. So we're going to take communion together. And I'm going to read from Hebrews. And um, just think back to what Phil was saying about what happened to Achan. And Think back to what he was saying about Jesus being a better taken than of these words. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachers. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. A high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place. It's a sin offering that's right in the heart of Jerusalem, right in the heart of the temple. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Jesus went outside camp like Achan and was killed. But he wasn't killed for his sin because he was sinless and holy and good in every way. But we 
Aikens deserved that. We deserved what Aiken got. But Jesus went outside of the camp, outside of the city, out of the Holy of Holies, to be slaughtered as the Lamb of God outside of the city. So when we come to take communion, we have, you'll notice this has been set up right in the middle today, and it's been set up right in the middle because I want to remind us that we no longer are outside the camp. We are in the presence of God. We are declared holy. We are made holy by Jesus going outside and into the defiled place and slaughtered for us. And now we have exchanged. It's been an exchange that's taken place and we've received his righteousness, his holiness. We are in the presence of God. Just think about it for a moment. We are in the presence of God. And so when we take communion, we're reminded that Jesus' body was given for us. And his blood spilled for us. As we take that bread and we dip it in the wine, we'll be reminded that you didn't deserve that. But give it to you anyway out of his wonderful love and grace. So let's get on our feet. We're going to worship Jesus together in response to God's word. And um, during these last few songs, I, I want to encourage you to come and take communion when, whenever you feel led to do that. At the moment, if you want to do that, um, go to the table, receive in the presence of God. And um, if you do have any words,